I want to start off, I'm going to sort of sandwich the Bible lesson with application on both ends. I'm going to start off by asking a very pointed question. And at the end of the day, I'm going to bring us back to a place of repentance if you don't answer this question the right way. And that the answer is, or the question is, have you ever felt called by God? Have you felt that God has placed a call on your life and, and invited you to respond to him? And when I say invite, that's really not the right word. It's it's because when God's calls really aren't morally neutral. An invitation is if I if I say, "Would you like to go to lunch?" Um, it's okay to say yes, and according to Miss Manners, it's okay to say no thanks and and no explanation required, and that's morally neutral. It's okay. Um, my invitations, you, you're free to say yes or no to. Uh, but when God calls you, no thanks is not an okay answer. That's not like. That's not like an invitation to a social event. And when I say to God, well, I hear you calling me, but I'm just not ready for that yet. I'm not sure I believe in you enough yet, or I'm not, I don't have enough faith, or, or I'm just not going to do it. I, I believe what I've done then is I've created kind of my spiritual timeout chair, where I'm sort of stuck there. And, and I, I've often heard, I've had this conversation a number of times with a number of people where they feel sort of stuck in their spiritual life, in their discipleship life. It's like, I just feel like I'm not hearing from God. I feel like I'm not doing this or that, or I feel like this isn't happening for me. And, and I want to ask, sometimes I don't because of tact, but because uh, <laughs> I found that, that knowing the right answer sometimes isn't all that helpful um, uh, in, in situations like this. But, but sometimes what I want to ask is, what did you do with the last thing God, did, God said to you? What did you do with the last thing God called you to? If God called you to A and you haven't acted on that, then you're not ready for B. Um, you know, I work for him. He doesn't work for me. And so when the Lord gives me his, communicates his will to me, it's not a suggestion for me to consider when I get around to it. It's a direction for me to follow. And until I follow that, it's, it's, it, I've got the relationship backwards if I then complain that God's not communicating anything to me. He's, he's waiting for me to respond to the last thing he communicated. So the question for you is, what's God called you to, and how have you responded to that? And maybe an easier way to see it, because I know whether from false humility or true humility or just a lack of understanding, it's really easy for people to say, oh, God's not called me to anything. Uh, let's put it this way. What gifts has God given you? Because he doesn't just give us gifts to put in our trophy case to make us more admirable. He gives us gifts for a purpose. And... You know, it's all his, and we're all his. Our lives are not our own. We're bought with a price, right? So if you, I think about my mom's collection of precious moments figurines. Uh, there are these little ceramic figurines, and they're nice to look at, but not very useful. Uh, but they're just nice to look at, and they give, they give her some pleasure. If God has given you gifts, it's not okay to just leave them on the shelf and just to become more admirable. They are tools that God has given you in order to advance the kingdom, in order to accomplish his purposes. So the question before you this morning, before we get started with the Bible lesson is, how are you doing with that? You know, has God put a call on your life? Has God given you gifts to use? Have you responded to that? If not, the worship time at the end is really a, a, a call to repentance. Uh, it's a time for, for I, I would encourage you to respond to the Holy Spirit and say, I repent of that. You know, here are my gifts, God. I want to use them on, on, uh, for your kingdom, for your glory. You know, show me how. I want to walk through the doors that you open. So what's that have to do with Esther? You know, we're going from a, a chapters. 
We're going chapter by chapter through Esther. We're going to be in Esther two months. We're on the third week, and we've got you know, a little more than a month to go. And so I'm going to make the connection, because we're going to see a guy with a pretty unique gift who didn't use it completely, and we're going to see that 500 years later, Esther's having to pick up his slack. And I don't want that. I, well, God gives me a job to do. I don't want some young girl having to pay the price 500 years down the road because I didn't do what God called me to do. And that's the situation we're going to see. So let's put it in context. Um, we've got a, a, a number of visitors here who haven't been here the last couple of weeks, so I want, to, I, I want to quickly review and kind of catch you up what we covered the first two chapters. First of all, in biblical context, Esther is one of the latest books chronologically in all of the Old Testament. Um, you know, the Old Testament's not written in order. Genesis, Malachi wasn't the last thing that happened. Uh, it's you know, part of a collection of prophetic writings that occurred you know, t t in the second half of the book or second half of the history. But you have kind of a, a, a history history of Israel, and then you have a kind of a prophetic history of Israel, and that's what all the, the, the books in the Old Testament that are named for people, those are usually prophets writing to, to communicating to Israel during the time they're going through their history. And so you know, 4,000 years ago, 2000 BC, you got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're pretty much the patriarchs, the beginning of the nation of Israel. Jacob's second youngest son, Joseph, takes him to Egypt. Moses, a few hundred years later, brings him out of Egypt. Joshua gets him into the promised land. Then there's the period of the judges. We did a, a series on that a couple, uh, a couple years ago. And then the Golden Age. 3,000 years ago, around 1,000 B.C., there were three kings of Israel, Saul, David, and Solomon. And it's the only time in all of history where Israel was like the dominant power of, of the Middle East, of the Fertile Crescent. It only lasted a couple generations. Because right after Solomon died, his son, son Rehoboam was not as wise a leader, and the, 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 the kingdom fell apart into two kingdoms, Judah and Israel. And both parts were disobedient, both parts were judged by God for that, conquered by their enemies, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and taken off into exile. And then after 70 years, as, as God prophesied through Jeremiah, they were allowed to come back. And there are three books that tell this story. Ezra and Nehemiah tell about the obedient remnant who came back to Israel and rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem. But a lesser told story, and Esther's unique among, the Bible, among all the Old Testament stories, because it's the one book that tells the story of the group of Jews who said, no thanks, we like it here in Persia, we're okay, we're going to stay. And why did, why did it, the majority of Jews stay in Persia after they were allowed to go back to Israel? The spiritual answer is for most of them disobedience. Uh, God said clearly through Jeremiah, after a period of exile, I'm going to call you back to the land. And, and most of them didn't go. They made new lives for themselves in, in, in Persia. They were conquered by the Babylonians, but then the Persians conquered the Babylonians. And so now that's why they're part of the Persian Empire. And the, the prof, all, the, all the stories in the book of Daniel take place in this context. And so if you were going to put the Bible in chronological order, after Ezra chapter 6, the first group of Jews come back to Israel Slip in the book, whole book of Esther and then read Ezra chapter 7 when the second group come back. So uh, Esther is written to a group of uh, Jewish people in exile in Persia. Now, the book starts, we know exactly when it starts historically, 483 B.C., and it takes place over several years. It's not real obvious reading this on the surface, but the text makes it plain that three years pass between chapter 1 and chapter 2 and four more years pass between chapter 2 and chapter 3. So, so it's not like, 
you know, chapter one happened one week and chapter two happened the next week. It plainly says what year of the reign of King Xerxes it was. And we know from accounts outside the Bible exactly when that was, or at least exactly what year it was. Ancient Persia had a couple of unique features, things that we should know, we can learn about them in any history book that actually come to bear on, on the, Bible, the Bible story and the Bible lessons that we're going to learn. They conquered Babylon in 539 BC, and so they were the top dogs of the Fertile Crescent for a couple hundred years until Alexander the Great came along. So it's the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans, and that's when Jesus was born, right? A couple unique features of Persian society is in Persia, even the king was under the law. I remember thinking that in, you remember the story in Daniel where uh, Daniel has to go to the lion's den and King Darius got kind of tricked into signing this decree and he was sorry that Daniel was sentenced to death. And I remember reading that when I was younger thinking, well, he's the king, why didn't he just change it? Well, in Persia, once the king put his signet ring on a decree, it was the law and even the king had to submit to that law. That's pretty advanced for 2,500 years ago. And we, we kind of take it for granted that's the way governments ought to work today. But there were a lot of governments uh, throughout the world that weren't there yet. 2,500 years ago, the king changed his mind, the law changes. Uh, even, into, you know, even into the Middle Ages, there were a lot of civilizations like that. Also, this might seem a little bit unrelated or kind of, kind of random historical fact from the history trivia geek, but uh, they're actually connected to the story. Um, the Persians kind of invented mail, uh, the postal system, with the nice roads and the deliveries all over the empire. That was invented by the Persians. Um, in the New York City Post Office, there's this, this saying about postal carriers that says something like, neither rain nor sleet nor dark nor gloom of night will stay these couriers from their appointed rounds. You ever heard that before? Well, that wasn't, written by, that wasn't written for the postal service in the United States. That was written in ancient times, and it was a description of the Persian mail couriers. We, we adopted that and used it to apply to our mail carriers because what we're saying is we want our guys to be as good as they were. You know, they're the ones that invented it. And then they kind of develop bureaucracies with, you know, you, you, you conquer and administer vast, you conquer vast lands, that's one thing, but to administer them is harder and more routine and more boring and just more difficult. But the Persians accomplished this by dividing the, the uh, empire into provinces. They called them satrapies, and the ruler, the governor of each province was called a satrap. So we're going to see that word in today's reading. And a satrap, if you just consider that to be like a, a royal governor over a, over a province. And, and those provinces included Israel and Judah. They were conquered territory for the Persians. So let's, let's review quickly chapter 1 and chapter 2. Chapter 1, you got this six-month pep rally because the Persians are getting ready to go to war against the Greeks. And the theme of this pep rally is we Persians are the best and King Xerxes is the most majestic and he's the most awesome leader and that's why we're willing to follow him forever. It ends with a seven-day banquet, lots of eating and drinking, and again, the same theme, we're the best. We're the Persians, King Xerxes is majestic and all that. The whole celebration is spoiled at the very last day. King Xerxes enjoying drinking with his buddies. And he says, hey, let's get Queen Vashti to come over here so we can have a look at her. And she responds, no, she doesn't come. And his excitement, his merriment over, uh, uh, from wine turns immediately into fury, and he's, he's, uh, he's enraged at being defied by Queen Vashti in front of all his drinking buddies. And it kind of spoils the whole message of this 187-day celebration. If, if I'm the most majestic guy and you ought to follow me into battle so we can beat those stinking Greeks, but now my wife won't even obey me. And remember, this is 
2,500 years ago. So, and he's the king, an ancient Near East king. So, we're nowhere near the, the, uh, the society's nowhere near where it is now, where a, a wife, uh, the, the queen, should have felt free to, to defy him or would have felt free to defy him. So, we're going to see this happen over and over again. The king consults his advisors. And they give him advice that he jumps on, and it's usually questionable advice in, in the book of Esther. And they say, ditch her. You know, this, is good, this is bad for us. You got her defying you. Our wives are going to defy us. It's bad all around. You got to get rid of her. Just replace her. Trade up. Replace her with somebody who's more compliant. And so he says, all right, that seems good to me. So he does that. Now, in between chapter 1 and chapter 2, there's some, some history book stuff. Three years pass. The, Greeks, the, the Persians go to war against Greece. They win the Battle of Thermopylae. This is in all the history books. Uh, if you've seen the movie 300, that's the story. And then they lose two key naval battles and ultimately lose the war. And the Persians lose the Greco-Persian War. And that's why the Greeks, you, you read about this, when, in the history books you read about it from the Greek perspective, they resist the bully Persians and they invent philosophy and drama and Olympics and all those cool things we appreciate about the Greeks, right? Because they didn't get dominated by the Persians. So at chapter two, Xerxes comes home from a losing war and starts missing his wife. You know, you banish your wife, there are consequences to that. You don't have her around anymore. And he starts missing his wife, and so his advisors give him another set of advice. Hey, how about you couldn't get her to parade in front of you? How about get all the women, uh, all the beautiful women of your empire to come around? We'll have like this big beauty contest. It's like The Bachelor, and it's the Persian king is The Bachelor. And it's more than really a beauty contest. It's more like a tryout. They become part of his concubine. They each one spend a night with the king, and he chooses his favorite, a very demeaning sort of contest. I mean, we, our, our reality show contest can be somewhat demeaning, but I don't think they've gotten this demeaning yet. Um, and uh, maybe I don't, know about the new, I don't know about the new fall season, but uh, it could be. But uh, anyway, he tries them all out, picks his favorite queen, uh, picks his favorite concubine, Esther, and she becomes the queen. Let's talk, and that's the end of chapter two, and that's the story of chapter two. Let's talk quickly about the characters so far. Xerxes is the king, king of Persia, son of Darius, father of Arctaxerxes. Uh, this isn't a once upon a time story. You can read about Xerxes in any world history book. Vashti was his former queen, so she's going to be out of the picture from now on. Uh, she's banished. Mordecai, we met him last week, I think, uh, a Jewish man from the tribe of Benjamin. He's the older cousin of Queen Esther, but because he becomes sort of a foster dad, they relate to each other more as father and daughter. Esther is an orphan. Her real name's Hadassah. Esther's her Persian name. She's an orphan. And Mordecai kind of takes over, takes responsibility for her upbringing. And then Esther is, of course, the, the queen of the show. Uh, her real name's Hadassah. And she's the orphan cousin who, in chapter two, progresses from orphan to concubine to queen. But remember, she's Vashti's successor, so it's not going to be a good idea for her to get too big for her britches because that's what got Vashti banished. Before we move on to chapter 3, one last thing. It's a key detail that Mordecai comes from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was Jacob's youngest son, and his 12 sons became the 12 tribes. And there are a number of Benjaminites who were kind of famous in Old Testament history or in Bible history. In the book of Judges, a couple years ago, we read about Ehud, the assassin who was left-handed. He hit his knife, and that way he was able to, because he was left, he was able to get his knife past the secret service and kill the fat king. Uh, maybe you remember that story. King Saul is the one who's important for today. King Saul was a Benjaminite. Jeremiah the prophet, Paul the apostle, also Benjaminites. So four years passed, now we're up to chapter 3. Let's read the first couple verses. 
After these events, this is the events of chapter 2, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Now, so Haman, the Agagite, and that, that detail is going to be important, is like the number two now. Xerxes, of course, is the king. He's got a bunch of nobles who serve him, but he's elevated Haman, so Haman's like the vice king of, of Persia. And everyone's supposed to honor Haman. Now, there are a couple of stories in Esther that are, remind me of stories in Daniel, but they're key differences. Like in chapter 2, Esther ate the special food that was prepared for the concubines. You know, Daniel didn't want to eat the special food. Um, Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego got in trouble in Babylon for not bowing down and worshiping an idol or the emperor or the king. And here, Mordecai won't bow down. But I don't think this is the same. Uh, now, this is just my opinion, but I don't believe that Mordecai is being asked to worship Haman. I think everybody's just showing him honor in the way that was typical in the ancient Near East. If you went to, to Buckingham Palace today and the queen walked in the room, would, would you curtsy if you were a lady or would you bow down, bow if you were a gentleman? I, I would. And would that be an act of worship or just an act of respect? I, I, I don't think anybody considers that to be an act of worship. And so this is my own little theory here. But I don't really think this was, I'm not going to commit idolatry by... by <clears throat> by showing honor to Haman. I think it's more an act of pride or defiance. And, uh, um, and we're, we're going to see what reason Mordecai would have for having such animosity towards Haman. In fact, uh, now is when I'm going to interrupt Esther chapter 3, and I'm going to take you on a little walk through Old Testament history. If you're a page flipper, I think that's pretty cool, but you'll have trouble keeping up today. So let me do the work. Uh, the, the website will have all the references. We're going to be mostly in 1 Samuel 15, uh, if you want to look it up. But we're definitely coming back to Esther 3, and I'm going to have a couple other passages along the way. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 says, There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush to evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among his brothers. So seven things God hates, according to the writer of Proverbs. And in doing my study over the last month, I found something else God hates, Amalekites. God hates Amalekites. And I can't explain why. I can't give you any exact reason for it. I can't give you theological significance for it. But there's no escaping it. The Amalekites were a tribe. Amalek was the grandson of Esau. Uh, Jacob's brother. And the Amalekites are mentioned several times in the Old Testament, always in the same context. They are the enemies of Israel. They are the enemies of God. Um, and it's, I mean, there's just no getting around the plain language of the Old Testament. Let's take a look. Um, just a quick review of Amalekite history. Uh, the story uh, that Allison read at the beginning where um, the Israelites battled the Amalekites at Rephidim. Those were Amalekites who attacked them. They were on their way from Egypt to the Promised Land, and the Amalekites saw that they were vulnerable and attacked them. And that's the story where Moses, you know, when his arms were up, the battle went well, and when his arms got tired, the battle didn't go well. Thus, they were fighting the Amalekites. Um, in Deuteronomy, God equates the defeat of the Amalekites with the rest of the Israelites, kind of saying this, You'll, when you get rest, you'll know it because the Amalekites will be gone. And as long as the Amalekites are around, you won't get rest. 
the Amalekites were defeated by Saul in 1 Samuel 15. They were defeated by David in 1 Samuel 27. And it was an Amalekite who actually killed Saul in 2 Samuel 1. Let's take a look at Exodus 17, starting with verse 14. Uh, this is the passage that Allison read for us at the beginning. Notice the end of, end of verse 14. This is God talking. I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Then go to the end of chapter, uh, verse 16. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. So the Old Testament clearly identifies the Amalekites as enemies of God, enemies of Israel, enemies of God. I realize there are parts of this message that are kind of challenging for a 20th century, mostly pacifist audience. Uh, try to avoid putting God on trial in your court of fairness. Uh, this was a different time. At the very end of this chapter, excuse me, the very end of Esther, we're going to get to kind of a violent chapter, and we'll talk a little bit about what's different now. Uh, uh, but that's, I don't have time to do two messages today, so we'll get to that in about a month. Uh, but for today, just sort of suspend that if you can, and just take it, take, take it on face value that the Amalekites were the enemies of God, and, and God's God and I'm not, so if he says they got to go, they got to go. Take a look at Deuteronomy. Chapter 25, uh, I'm going to read the last or verses 17 through 19. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and cut off all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. Verse 19, when your Lord, your God, gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land he is giving you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. So here's where we're going to come up to the Saul story. And we're going to spend most of our time this morning in 1 Samuel 15 and before we get back to the Esther uh, chapter 3. God called Saul, King Saul, to a particular purpose. It seemed like Saul had this kind of unique gift. He was really good at killing Amalekites. And God intended for him to put that gift to use and gave Saul a calling, I want you to wipe him out. And, and when we look at the language, it seems very harsh, but it's unmistakable. Uh, God's directions to Saul are plain. First uh, Samuel 15, we're going to read pretty much the whole chapter. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. So understand, this is God's purpose, not Saul. God says, I'm going to get them. I'm going to take down the Amalekites. Um, and he's calling Saul to do it, but the, one of the things we need to learn from this passage is once God's purpose to do it, it's going to happen. The question is whether Saul's going to answer his call or whether God's going to get somebody else to answer his call. And of course, you've probably already seen to the end. Um, I'll, I'll make the connections in a minute. But uh, what we're going to see here is Saul drops the ball, and 500 years later, this young Jewish girl essentially has to get pimped out to a pagan king in order to pick up his slack. And I don't want that to be my legacy. God puts a call on my life. I want to be the one to, in, in, in heaven's history book. I want to be the one who fulfilled God's purpose in my generation, like, like, like we read about David today. Not that I dropped the ball, and now somebody else had to do it later on. So let's make the connection. Verse 3. This is God talking to Saul through the prophet Samuel. Now go, attack the Amalekites, and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Again, we'll talk about the violence in the Old Testament when we get to the end of uh, Esther. Verse 7. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur to the east of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. 
Notice that name. Who's the king of the Amalekites? His name is Agag. Uh, we need to remember that name because that's where the connection comes from. So he, he killed them all, but he kept the king, and he's going to keep some livestock too. Verse 9, but Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. So why didn't they destroy everything? It wasn't scruples, it was greed. Uh, remember, the, the uh, mastery over the food supply is something we take for granted in 2008. It, it wasn't there yet in, in Saul's day. And so you got some really nice fat sheep and cows. It's, it's hard to just kill those and let them go. So they kept the best of them. And then why would he keep the king alive? In the ancient Near East, kings collected conquered kings like hunters would collect deer heads uh, for trophies. They would have a dungeon, and they would, they would keep imprisoned kings down in their dungeon. If they'd have one of their buddy kings come over, they'd say, hey, let me show you the kings I've conquered. And they'd, they'd you know, here's the king of the Malachites, here's the king of the Moabites, or whatever. And so they'd have them in there like trophies in their, in their little dungeons. And so I'm thinking that's probably why he let Agag live. So what Saul did was he mostly obeyed, but he didn't completely obey. Um, and, and obedience that's not complete really isn't obedience. It's, just, it's disobedience. And that's kind of a hard message to swallow, but that's, that's the biblical truth here. I remember when my daughter was in junior high, maybe, uh, maybe early high school, she had a way of reporting her grades to us that we thought was kind of amusing. Uh, report cards would come out, and we'd say, uh, so Allison, how'd you do on your report card? She'd say, I made all A's and two B's. And uh, we thought that was kind of amusing because we realized she wasn't the only kid doing it. And, and we... we we didn't want to like beat her down with this, but we kind of had to explain to her, you know, it's not all A's if there are two B's there, right? Uh, but uh, we thought it was funny the way they'd say, all A's and two B's. Um, but, uh, you know, that was just a positive spin, I guess, is how they would do it. So that's kind of what Saul's going to do. He's like, I, I obeyed God almost completely. And that's, that's where we see Saul. Let's go to verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Verse 12, early in the morning Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. I think this monument's kind of funny. I wonder what it said on it. Here's Saul, the monument to King Saul who almost completely obeyed God. Yeah, that would be it. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Now, I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but it seems to me like Saul's a little bit on the defensive here. You know, the first words out of his mouth to Samuel, the prophet, are, you know, bless you, Samuel. I did what I did. I carried out the Lord's instructions. It's like, you know, what are you checking up on me for? I did what you told me to do. And I love Samuel's answer. It's, it's to me, a really funny line from the Old Testament. Verse 14, Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? You know, Samuel said, I told you to wipe them all out. What's, what's this livestock noise? Obviously, you didn't do it. Saul answered, notice the projection here. The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. I don't have too much time to get into the recovery message here, but several dysfunctional tools are at play here. Um, Saul said, the soldiers brought them. That's the one we call projection. You can see that as far back as the garden. Adam said, it's that woman who gave me the fruit. Oh, that woman you made. So he's projecting on Eve and projecting on God all in the same line. And then we, we had to keep some of them to sacrifice. That's, we call that one rationalization. We give ourselves a good reason for not doing what, not obeying fully. 
Verse 16, Samuel's harsh. He's going to hear none of it. Stop, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. <laughs> tell me, Saul replied. I, I don't know how to read the inflection in the, into that, but I can't imagine Saul is too eager to hear it. Uh, tell me, because uh, he knows it's not going to be good. Let's hear Samuel's speech. Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy these wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Now, I have trouble reading the inflection, but I, you know, sometimes I let my imagination fill in the gaps where the text doesn't explain it. How many of you have seen, um, let's get a show of hands for this. Will Forte is a player on Saturday Night Live, and he does kind of a, a weak impression of President Bush where he comes off as kind of whiny. Have, have you seen that? Raise your hand if you have. Now, when I read this next verse, I kind of picture the Will Forte impression of President Bush there. I don't want to make the, I'm not making, a, I'm not linking Saul to President Bush, but if you can hear Will Forte's impression as you read this, I think that's, that's kind of how it sounds to me. So Samuel says, why didn't you obey the Lord? And Saul says, well, but I did obey the Lord. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And so what Saul's saying is, what are you busting me for? I did what you said, almost completely. And this is the problem with Saul. You know, we'll get to this at the end. But you, know, you compare David's sin and Saul's sin, there's no comparison. David was an adulterer and a murderer. Saul was 98, 99% obedient. Why is it that David's a man after God's own heart and Saul is rejected? It's not because of the quality of their sin. It's the quality of their repentance. Samuel comes to Saul and says, why didn't you obey God? And Saul makes excuses. He projects. He rationalizes. And he never repents. And Nathan comes to David and says, why have you done this thing? And, and you know, read Psalm 51. David says, I have sinned. And this is, this, is what, this is the difference between these two kings. Now, the next two verses, 1 Samuel 15, 22, and 23, uh, these verses are kind of, um, they're important to me. Uh, Fifteen years ago, I heard a message on this passage, and these verses changed my life. I, I, these verses are worthy of meditation. They're worthy of memorizing. I encourage you to write them down, reread them, ask the Holy Spirit to show you what this means in your life. Um, in my life, it changed me. Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Verse 23. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Got several engineers in the room, so uh, you could actually draw this as kind of a math diagram. There's a comparison of obedience and sacrifice. We put that little greater than symbol, right? Obedience is better than sacrifice. And then, then verse 23 has two equivalencies. Rebellion is like divination. What's divination? That's like fortune-telling, like witchcraft. What was the penalty for uh, divination uh, 3,000 years ago? It was death. And so this is a, what, what God's saying here through Samuel is that rebellion is a capital crime in my kingdom. And 
arrogance. Some, uh, some uh, translations use the word stubbornness here, which is really easy to, to apply. Most of us would deny being arrogant, but would find it easier to admit to being stubborn. And, and I guess the point I want to make there, spiritually speaking, they're pretty much the same. Uh, stubbornness or arrogance, that's when I say, I'm going to be the king of court world, I do what I want, and I'll pick and choose which authorities I'm going to submit to and in which context I'm going to submit. That's stubbornness, that's arrogance. And the Bible says it's like idolatry. Again, another capital crime, spiritually speaking, of course, it's ultimately a capital crime, right? Are we ready to go back to Esther? We set the stage, Saul didn't obey. He spared this one guy, his name was Agag. Let's take a look at back to Esther chapter 3, verse 1. Who is Haman? He's the son of Hamadatha, and look at this, he's an Agagite. This is a descendant of the king that Saul spared. And so Saul of the tribe of Benjamin got a call to blot these people out, and he didn't do it. And so 500 years later, Mordecai, a Benjaminite, and his young cousin Esther, of course, also from the tribe of Benjamin, now finish the job that God purposed to do, are going to be called to finish the job that God purposed to do because Saul didn't get it done. We can go quickly through the rest of the chapter because now that we've kind of set the stage, the rest of it makes, we've kind of laid a foundation where it's just going to make more sense. So we've got a descendant of this Amalekite king now trying to wipe out all of the Jews. And remember, if he wipes out all the Jews, that's going to be... A, that's going to include the Jews in Palestine too, right? That's going to include the ancestors of Jesus. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's read the story. Verse 3, Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. It's kind of interesting to me. Esther's identity was a secret, but Mordecai kind of wore his as a badge of pride. That's why I'm not going to bow down to you. Um, of course, that means that Esther and Mordecai's relationship has to be a secret too, right? Because he can't be a Jew if she's not. Verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. And when you first read that on face value, it seems like, gosh, that's pretty harsh. He's got this one guy who is disrespectful to him, but instead of just punishing him or killing him, he wants to kill his whole nation of people he comes from. But if you see the, the connections of the Amalekites to the Israelites, they've been enemies throughout history. It sort of makes more sense. I'm going to wipe out his whole people. This is my, this is my time. So Haman's like a little proto-Hitler, uh, except he, he's not nearly as successful. He's, he, this is an opportunity to revive this ancient feud. Verse 7, in the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, they cast the pure, that is the lot, in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. The point here I'd like for you to see is this is not a once upon a time story. This is an event in history. The month of Nisan, that's April or May. The year, twelfth year of King Xerxes, that's 474 BC. This is a historical event. Persians were very superstitious, so Haman decides he's going to take down these Israelites. They cast lots. The poor is like a, a, a like rolling the dice or casting lots to pick the best day. They pick the best day. Turns out it's 11 months later, almost a complete year later. Uh, the killing time is going to be February or March of 473 B.C., which is uh, kind of interesting to me. I think I see God's providence in this. In 11 months, we can do, we can do something to put a stop to this. Verse 8. Haman said to King Xerxes, There's a certain people dispersed and scattered among the people, 
peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom whose customs are different from those of all the other people and who do not obey the king's law. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. <clears throat> Notice how Haman goes to, to the king and he doesn't name the people. I'm not sure why that is except <clears throat> Xerxes' ancestor Cyrus had shown favor to the Jews. And so maybe if he goes in with his guns loaded for the Jews, that that's going to be a problem. So he kind of lays out his case against them without revealing who they are. Verse 9, this is still Haman talking. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men to carry out this business. <clears throat> the Persians use silver as their standard instead of gold. That's why it's silver. And 10,000 talents, it's hard to translate that now because every time you read a book on it, it's already out of date because of our inflation. But this is a gazillion dollars. This is a huge amount of money. 10,000 talents would have been more than half of the annual budget of the whole empire of Persia. Uh, so this would have been millions in our terms. And Haman proposes to drop this in the treasury in exchange for getting his way here. Where's he going to get that kind of money? Does he already have that kind of money? Um, I, I have a theory that he's going to get it from plundering the Jews. But uh, uh, take a look at uh, Xerxes' response. Verse 10. The king took out his signet ring. That's like just the way the king seals a royal document or decree to, to give his authorization. King took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite. Notice how the writer of Esther keeps driving at home who this guy is, the descendant of Agag. The enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Now, what's Xerxes done here? He signed his own wife's death warrant, unwittingly. But you know, she's a Jew, and ultimately he signed her death warrant as well. We can gain a little insight into Xerxes' character just from seeing this. First, obviously he has a lot of confidence in Haman, which sort of tells us something about him, because we can see Haman as a bad guy, and so we don't see him as that great a judge of character. And a, quite, a, quite an arrogant king when it comes to his subjects. I mean, I have a, I have a relationship with a number of people you know, in this room even, who if you came to me and said, yeah, I want to do something that's going to cost some money, I wouldn't need to ask a whole lot of questions. I'd be like, okay, you know, whatever, I'll tell me about it later. Or I'd like to do this, what do you think? I'd like to start that, what do you think? And there wouldn't be any need to have you know, that kind of relationship where I have that kind of trust for a lot of people in this room. But, but he's not asking to you know, spend some money out of the budget on, on a new thing. He's asking to wipe out a tribe of people. And, and Xerxes is like, yeah, I got plenty of subjects. You know, easy come, easy go. You, you do what you think, do what you think's right. So that, that's, that's harsh. Verse 12, then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. Here's where we're going to see the bureaucracy and the postal system come into play. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. They were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Verse 13, here's the mail. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Well, that might be where the money's coming from, right? Remember, this is all the Jews in all the empire, which is going to include all the Jews back in Israel, the ancestors of Jesus. Verse 14, a copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality, so they would be ready for that day. Verse 15, spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Yeah, you think? 
It's funny, Haman and the, the king sitting down, hey, good plan. Let's have a, you know, let's, let's drink a toast to our great plan. And the, the city of Susa is like, what's this about? So what's the application? This is a 25-year-old story. What's this mean to you and me in 2008 in Melbourne, Florida? That's not it. <laughs> if you see an Amalekite, take him out. Well, first of all, you're not going to see an Amalekite. God said, I'm going to wipe him out, and they're wiped out now. You, know, you won't find them. So that's not the application. Let's start with this. God will accomplish his purposes. You know, he purposed to, to remove this people, and it happened. The question is, will you accomplish yours? Saul didn't accomplish his. David did accomplish his. Esther and Mordecai accomplished theirs. If God's put a call on your life, the thing he's called you to do will get done. The question is, are you going to enjoy the blessing of, of, of getting to do it? You will find no better fulfillment this side of heaven than saying yes to God's call and allowing yourself to be used for his kingdom, for his glory. Secondly, obedience to God is not graded on a curve. You know, my students... They, they, they like to find out how badly the rest of them did, so maybe they, I'll adjust the grades to help them all out. It's, you know, if, if one of my kids in a class does 95% of what I've called him to do, that's an A. But Saul did 99% of what God called him to do, and he's answering to God for his disobedience. When, when you and I answer God's call and we obey almost completely, it's that part that we set aside that's the, the spiritual issue. And, and, and I believe I've sort of created my own little spiritual timeout chair, and I'm not able to, to, to move forward or to mature or to grow as a disciple until I deal with that issue. So that's the question. As we go in back into the worship time, as we go back into the response time, if, if the Holy Spirit's identifying this area of almost obedience in your life. That's what I feel like the Holy Spirit would be calling you to deal with this morning. And finally, what's the difference between David and Saul? I just barely mentioned David, but, but I said it earlier, it wasn't the quality of their sin, but the quality of their repentance. David turned away and he repented. Saul made excuses. excuses. He rationalized, he projected, he never turned away from his sin and he never turned back to obedience. Let's pray. God, I wanna be like David and not like Saul. And Lord, on behalf of uh, this congregation, I ask that you would show us, are there areas of stubbornness that we've held on to because we're not willing to yield to you? Uh, God, are there places where we've gotten our lives backwards, where we, uh, where we are reluctant to submit to you as king? Holy Spirit, I ask that you would show us those and give us the grace to respond. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.